if our ushers would come at this time, we will receive our tithes and offering. While we are receiving the offering here in our service, let me share a great need, your prayers. Please pray with us that God would use and bless the Foothills Baptist Gospel Hour. This program is a ministry of Foothills Baptist Church of Loveland. If the Lord would lay on your heart to donate to the Foothills Baptist Gospel Hour, we will provide our contact information at the end of this program. We will now return to the service. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands, before the throne my surety stands, my name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede, his all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our race, His blood atoned for all our race, And sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds He bears, Received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers, They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. The Father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his Son. His spirit answers to the blood, his spirit answers to the blood, and tells me I am born of God. I now am reconciled, his pardoning voice I hear, he owns me for his child, I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh, with confidence I now draw nigh, and Father above Father cry. John chapter 7, uh, and in just a few moments I'll begin with verse 32. But before I read our passage, I want to give a little bit of a background and, and setting of uh, the text. We're continuing in the uh, same chapter that we preached from, I preached from last week. And the setting is the Feast of the Tabernacles. It's also been called the Feast of the Booths. And what they would do, they would come in, they would be there for a week, and uh, they would erect their uh, uh, booths. Today we'd call them tents. Jerusalem would have turned into tent city for a week with all of the pilgrims and all the travelers coming in to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. It would happen sometime between September, uh, the end of September, 1st of October. It would go according to the Jewish lunar calendar, not our calendar. And so their calendar would be a little different than ours. But it would have been sometime between the end of September, 1st of October, and right after the harvest 
because the Feast of the Tabernacles was a celebration after the harvest as well. This was one of the three. There were seven total uh, major feasts that uh, God gave Israel. Three of them, the Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, all adult males were supposed to attend these every year. And so this would have been one of the largest gatherings in Jerusalem out of the feast and out of any of the events that took place, uh, along with the other two that required all of the men to attend. First, it was a memorial feast to remember God's provision during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Can you imagine? Now, the women folk probably would not like this, but could you imagine for 40 years their shoes never wore out? They never needed a new pair of shoes. Uh, the guys probably like that. I mean, once it's broke in, it feels good. It, even if it gets a hole on the side, it's tough to give them up. But uh, God always provided. They had a meal every day. They had food every day. And God provided for them. And so it was a, a memorial feast to remember and to tell another generation how God had provided. It was a celebration feast to thank God for the harvest that they just received. And, and at the end of the year... I suppose you could compare it a little bit to our Thanksgiving Day and holiday. It's a one-day event, but uh, that was established to thank God for the harvest and for His provision for that year. It was also a prophetic feast looking forward to the person and to the work of Jesus Christ. All of those feasts and many of the things that the Lord had given Israel were prophetic in nature, a shadow of the things to come, and by the things I mean the Lord Jesus Christ and His great work. And so they were all together here in Jerusalem on this great day. Now, this particular feast that is recorded here took place approximately six months before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we are getting to the latter portion of his public ministry here on the earth. He came to this feast in God's timing without public fanfare. As you begin the chapter, there's a little debate with, with him and his half-brothers. And said, well, let's go up and proclaim yourself. If you're who you think you are, let's just have great fanfare and, and publicity. This was not the Lord's timing for that. His father's timing was not set that way. Later on Palm Sunday, the beginning of the, uh, uh, the Passover week, or that final week when he uh, gave his life for our sin penalty, uh, he did give that public announcement and proclaimed himself the Messiah to the nation and the leadership of Israel to give them an opportunity to either receive or reject, and we know that they rejected him. And so here he did not come with public fanfare. He had become the subject of much controversial debate. We go in through the first 31 verses of this chapter that we have been studying. There was great debate about his character and about his doctrine and, and who he was and where he came from and these kinds of things. And it came to a climax on the last day of the feast. On the last day of the feast and on the last day, there was a procession, and this happened, I believe, every day of the feast. But here on, when he gets up to make this announcement, what would happen is there would be a procession led by the priests that would go to the pool of Siloam. 
And they would have some golden pitchers and they would fill them with water from the pool of Siloam. And then they would return to the temple just as the morning sacrifices were being offered. The water which also symbolized that God was the author and giver of rain so they could have a harvest, but the water was then poured into a funnel at the west side of the altar. And after that was done, the temple choir would begin singing the great Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. And it was at this time that Jesus Christ stood and declared to all, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And it goes on from there. (coughs) As a result of this came the explosive opposition from the Jewish leadership. From this time, they became very proactive to seek his arrest, to seek his demise, and even to kill him. With this understanding of what's going on, let's stand together. John chapter 7, I'll begin with verse 32. Let me read these verses to the end of the chapter. (coughs) The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then said Jesus unto them, Yet a little while am I with you. And then I go unto him that sent me. (coughs) Ye shall seek me. And shall not find me. And where I am, thither ye cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, Whither will ye go, that he shall not find that we shall not find him? Will he go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this that he said, Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me, and where I am, thither ye cannot come? In the last days, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is a prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have ye not brought him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night being one of them. Doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? Then answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went unto his own house. Father, we come to you this morning. And uh, what a tremendous passage and what a record of what took place there. 
Father, you've been so good to us. And I thank you for your salvation again and, and your goodness to me. Because of that, I find it so hard to comprehend why anybody would reject Jesus Christ like this. But that's within the, the heart that has blinded eyes. And Father, I do ask that nobody would have blind eyes here this morning. Father, I pray that they would have eyes to see the truth about Jesus Christ. And if they have not received him as their Savior, that they would do so today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. People often say, can't we all just get along? Can't we all just set all of our differences apart and just get along and coexist? Well, f frankly, my friend, the answer to that question is no. It doesn't work that way. And the reason I say that is lies cannot really get along with some of the other lies that are out there. And truth can never coexist with a lie. Interestingly, and, and a lot of people only look at a portion about the person and the work and the statements of Jesus Christ. And this is one that is often neglected if not unintentionally, intentionally. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 51, Jesus Christ said, Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth, I tell you nay, rather division. And you will find that he makes this statement, and it's recorded multiple times in the Gospels, and you will also discover in the epistles that biblical truth will cause division not within those who believe biblical truth, but those who reject biblical truth. And so to begin with, I want to give you some thoughts about the division caused by the truth of who Jesus Christ is. The first truth about Christ dividing is that he divides the religious from the non-religious. Now, when I say religious, it's quite all-inclusive of every kind of religion, whether they believe in the one true God or they believe in a God after their imagination. But you'll find that the non-religious who says there is no God and try to deny that fact and even deny in their heart that there is a God, it puts them at odds with those that believe there really is a God, whether they're believing in the true God or a man-made God. It creates that division. In fact, the division has been so much throughout history that you will find that these groups will even turn to killing each other because of the disagreement and because of this particular disagreement. I believe, in, and very rarely is there a country that's truly atheistic, but North Korea is one that ha talks about being non-religious, at least on some level. In North Korea, it is illegal to be a Christian or to share your faith. If you are found to be a Christian, you're arrested and put in prison and either tortured or killed or both. The second truth about Christ and how he, uh, he divides, he divides Christianity from all other religions. Now, I use Christianity in a more generic, loose terms of Christendom, the all sorts and forms of both true and fake Christianity. But it divides Christianity from other religions, such as Islam, Hinduism, and the list goes on.
Now, again, in this matter, you will have discovered that they have been killing each other simply because of this disagreement. There was the crusaders that went to fight in the sign of the cross and went to kill Muslims. You'll find that the Muslims came and they've tried to kill Christians. Today, uh, the Islamic uh, organization, their great chant is kill Muslims and Jews or Christians and Jews. And so this divides people. Christianity from other religions. It creates that religion. Now, as I said, the crusaders and different ones and how they kill each other. Do understand this, and this is very important. Get this. True New Testament biblical Christianity has not and should not be proactive in killing others. Be sure you understand that. Because they do not, and and doing that simply because they do not agree with us, spiritually speaking. And so be sure we understand that. Now, I'm not saying that Christians should not join the army. I'm not saying that that Christians should not defend themselves when their their life and property is being invaded. But I'm talking about banning together to kill people simply because they do not believe in Christ. Nothing in the New Testament commands us to do that. Now let's come into the division that is within our text this morning. And in this group of people, the, the first two that I mentioned, there's a whole wide diversity of stuff out there. But in this particular chapter, all of the people that are involved here believed in God, the God of the Bible. They were Jews. They believed in that there was the one true God who is the creator God, who is the God of the covenant with Israel. They all believed in God. It wasn't that they were believing in different gods. By and large, probably, if not all, the overwhelming majority believed and looked forward to the Messiah coming. The issue here was, is Jesus the Messiah And yes, he is. And he was. And that became the point of division. The three groups of people, as I mentioned last week, there was the Jewish leadership from the high priest to the Sanhedrin, all of that leadership. There was the local Jews, those that lived in Jerusalem and just within the urban areas around it that, that uh, were there. There was the pilgrim Jews that traveled in from all the regions beyond. And uh, some of them may have spoke different languages. They came, had grown up in some different cultures and all of these regions beyond. But as they came together, whatever that diversity was, they all believed in the God of the Bible. They all agreed that there was a coming Messiah. But here in Jerusalem, we see the great divide, and it is in this way. First, there was a division of those who did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't even believe he was a good man. They referred to Jesus as, he's a liar. He's a deceiver. They didn't buy into any of it. Now, the bottom line here, it was all their opinion. It was not based on biblical truth. It was not rooted in the 
prophetic record that they had access to and probably had had been taught from Genesis to Malachi, all of the prophets, everything that had been there, uh, even the, the Gentile magi that came at his birth, they knew that Jesus was special and they followed a miraculous star, found him and worshiped him. And if the foreigners like that could understand that much, these people had ample opportunity to understand and know the truth, but chose not to, and out of their opinion, simply rejected him. Do you know what? When people reject Jesus Christ in this way, it's never based on truth. It's always based on opinion, just like these right here. There was a division of those who believed some, but not all. They believed he was a good man. And do you know, that's hard not to go down that road, Because the Bible said that he never sinned. He was in perfect righteousness. And that is true. And so everything he did was right. Generated out of a holy character. And so to say he was a good man would be consistent for what the people who observed everything he did and ever being around him, they would have to, yeah, this is a good man. But let me say this, here is a problem and a conflict. Even good men could be liars. You see, if he was not indeed Jesus Christ the Messiah, God the Son, he was a liar. And so I guess you could say both of these first two groups would be right if he was not God the Son, but he is and was God the Son. And so again, this was based upon their opinion. They they believed him a good man, even thought possibly a prophet... But they did not believe that he was a Messiah. Do you know we have religious groups that believe Jesus Christ was a good man and a great person? Take for, but they don't believe that he is God the Son. Take Mormonism, for example. They talk about Jesus, I understand, in their Book of Mormon and some of their writings. But they don't believe he is God the Son. They refer to him as Lucifer's brother. And so another one, Jehovah Witness. They, they believe that Jesus was, was a good man, and they refer to him as a God, but they refuse to accept that he is God the Son, God incarnate. In fact, so much so because the Bible, if you'll use a King James translation that's been trusted over 400 years... If you pick one of those up and you begin reading it, you'll find that Jesus Christ claimed more than once to be God incarnate. And the Bible specifically says he was God the Son. That's why both of these religions have had to write their own Bible to justify their religion. And so you see the same thing. They'll they'll say he's a good man, but they will not see him as God the Son. Another division that took place in all of this crowd was of those who believed him to be Christ. In verse 41, you'll find some said he's a prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. And inevitably, there were some that truly believed that he was Jesus, that he was Christ, the Messiah, that he was the one that they were supposed to look for. But they believed it mentally and understood that's what he was and agreed with the facts and agreed with the truth. But it seems evident that they never believed in the heart with repentance unto faith in Jesus Christ. 
And you know, that's a dangerous place to be because you can believe all of the truth about Jesus Christ as God incarnate, as a son, as the one who, who laid his life down and paid for our sins vicariously. And for our children, that word vicarious means substitute. Vicariously, he paid our sins. You can believe all of that truth. You can believe there is a heaven. You can believe there is a hell. And you can believe that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll be saved and go to heaven. But if you don't act upon that, you're still as lost as the first person that said he's a liar and a deceiver. And there's people today that will believe all of that and come to that same conclusion and not put their faith in Jesus Christ. Another division was of great hostility of unbelief in high places. What do you do when the unbelief is in high places? We're talking about the high priests and the Sanhedrin and and all of the spiritual leadership. They didn't believe. They adamantly and hostilely refused and rejected and did not believe. Get this. This may sound familiar. But the chief priests were members of the most wealthy and powerful priestly families. And it was from this group of people that the high priest was selected. And many of the members of the Sanhedrin and the ruling body were were selected from this group of family. And, and of course, these would be of the tribe of Levite and the ones that were to have the priestly office. But it was out of that network of of families within that were, were of the extreme wealth and seem like absolute power of totalitarianism. And, and, and not only this, but the, the, the high priest was chosen from this group and the temple police, the temple officers, they were the ones that enforced what the high priest and the ruling body wanted to have happen. The temple officers were also selected from this group as well. So if anybody ever disagreed with leadership, they had their form of censorship and enforcement to silence them, destroy them, or put them out. This is what they were, and this is what was happening. I guess we could say they were the corrupt powers of the religious swamp in Jerusalem. Some things repeat themselves. However, there is only one Christ. Do understand that. But some things keep reoccurring. To them, Jesus was a threat of their exposure. And he did. He exposed their, their, their money laundering and how they were uh, exacting unnecessary money out of the people by when he cleansed the temple and, and things like that. He exposed their hypocrisy and, and their evil hearts and called them whitewashed sepulchers of how they were whitewashed on the outside to try to look so good. But they were the, the epitome of hypocrisy because inside they were basically ungodly. That means to leave God out. He called them vipers. Yes, he did expose their absolute corruption. And they didn't like that. And they feared that he would remove them from their power and authority to control the people. And so they were on a mission to destroy him. 
But their argument and presentation publicly was based upon lies. In the last part of chapter 7, you get from about uh, 45 and on down through there. You'll find that uh, when the uh, police officers come back and, and uh, they didn't arrest him and they said, never a man spoke like this. I mean, it stunned them. They were beyond belief. The leaderships answered them, and it was the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? This is another case of calling good evil and evil good. Calling the man of truth the liar when the man, uh, men of liars see themselves as portraying truth. All over again. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? You know, that's not a good bar to set. If all the world reject Jesus Christ, you still ought to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so don't put your faith in Jesus Christ because of what somebody else did or did not do. Don't choose to reject Jesus Christ because of what somebody else has done or not done. Put your faith, repent of your sin, and put your faith in Jesus Christ because you need Him as a Savior for eternal life or the wrath of God will rest upon you for eternity. And not only that, it is a wonderful thing because I can share the testimony that a life in Jesus Christ is a fulfilling life. It is a new life, an abundant life. It is a good thing. So do not make your choice based upon what somebody else thinks. Their argument also rested upon lies in verse 15. Now, now in, in, when Nicodemus, and, and here's some things of what our law was originally written. You're innocent until proven guilty. You don't have to prove your innocence. You're innocent until proven guilty. Our founders spent hours reading the Bible as they were trying to craft our government and justice. And this would be a principle that would have been taken out of here. You see, Nicodemus said, um, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? Their response was, Art thou also a Galilee? Slander, name-calling, attack. You see, they didn't even care about the law. They were circumventing the law. They were ignoring the law. The law may apply to everybody else as long as it was to their benefit, but when the law got in the way of what they wanted to do, the law meant nothing. And so here they, they respond to Nicodemus in this way. And they say, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And in saying this, is it like, You better not search because we've given you the answer, and you better not find a prophet because we said there's no prophet. And the reason that he should not search is because there was a prophet. Elijah came out of the Galilee area. So not only were they trying to abandon law, they abandoned truth and purported lies. And so here we see that hostile division. This is all the historical, <coughs> that Jesus Christ is the cause of division. Truth cannot coexist with lies. That's the historical, that's what's happening here. Now let me put it in a more practical way for you and I today. You see, the fact that Jesus Christ is the cause of division is even personal for you and I. 
For the unbeliever, Christ means little or nothing. It may have some impact or no impact. But you see, for you and I as a believer in Christ, he is our all in all. He is everything to us. That is a great divide. When it comes to love, the unbeliever loves the world and all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of the life. They're given to, to, to loving that and cherishing that. Just look around and see how, how they, uh, the, their eyes see stuff and they want it and they have to have it and, and they'll go into incredible debt and pay incredible interest to have it. Uh, the lust of the flesh and, and how they, our world and our culture has been in such a love affair with, with the love of the lust of the flesh and not only to one end to the ultimate of perversion with that, but for the believer, we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might, with all our strength. There is a great divide between the believer and the unbeliever on the truth of Jesus Christ when it comes to our love. For the unbeliever, when it comes to trust, he trusts himself. Oh, he might trust a friend. He might trust government. And what a failure that can come to. But they basically trust themselves to have the right answer, to know what's best for them, to support themselves, supply for themselves. But for the believer, our trust is only in Jesus Christ. We realize when we sit down to a meal, we thank the Lord Jesus Christ for his provision that we may eat. We understand what the Old Testament author said, that it is God who gives thee the power to get and gain wealth. So when we have the finances to be able to pay our bills on a weekly, monthly, daily basis, as a believer, we thank God for his provision, for, for what we are able to do. The unbeliever says, look at what I have accomplished and look at my stash and look at how I have taken care of myself. There, there's a film, Shenandoah, Jimmy Stewart. As it begins, he is very anti-God. But his wife was more of a Christian persuasion. Well, the wife had passed away. They had their whole family. And he still kept the tradition that his wife instilled that they would come around the table and, and say prayer. And, and uh, he would say, now, Lord, we thank you for this meal. But I don't know why we thank you because we removed the trees. We tilled the field. We planted the seed. We, we cultivated the weeds out. We'd, you know, it was all self-trust. That's iconic of human nature. When it comes to hope, the unbeliever, when everything goes bad, they go into despair and hopelessness, and they have nothing or no one to hold on to. But for you and, and I as believers, we believe in the God of hope who gives us the, the, the uh, this evidences that we may trust him that we may abound in hope. That no matter what we experience, no matter what we are going through, our God is in control and we have a hope that he has a purpose and we know he has a purpose and that he will bring us to himself. 
when it comes to purpose, the unbeliever is seeking his own self-fulfillment in life to lighten his own star and make him shine and, and his purpose. Now, it, it may reach out to, to helping others in, in benevolence of one way or another, but you will find in worldly people a lot of times their effort of benevolence is all about promoting themselves through the method of benevolence. But for the believer... Our banner is, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. When I got up this morning, my purpose today was to glorify God. As I come to this pulpit today, my purpose is to glorify God. You as a believer, as you woke up this morning, your purpose was to glorify God. As you sit here in this auditorium, your goal is to glorify God. As I start this week, this week, my purpose is to glorify God. Whether I eat, whether I drink, whether I'm driving on the road, whether uh, we, we have uh, mechanical issues, whether we, we get a... a, a catastrophic phone call, whatever it is, through all of it, we're going to glorify God. We have a great divide in our purpose. When it comes to character, it is the unbeliever who chooses what they want to be right and wrong. They can call good evil and evil good and think it's good. They can say there's nothing wrong with this or nothing wrong with that even to the point of such adverse moral perversion and call it good. Let me take a moment. We have our Friday church news available back there. I forget the name of the lady, 93 years old. She was the one that started the, the clothing revolution that invented the miniskirt, the micro-mini, the hot pants, put suits on women and long hair on men and she knew what she was doing to blur the gender and destroy the gender identification get a copy of that and read it if we run out she says it herself find out what's going on we have warned as preachers for years that this was coming down the pike and they said oh we don't believe you well, maybe some will now begin to believe with that. But they can call all that good or good, which is evil. But for the believer, we look to God to define right and wrong. We go to his word. What he says is right is right, and what he says is wrong is wrong. What he calls good is good, and, and let him define evil. What is righteous and what is unrighteous. There is a great divide with that. The list here could continue whether it be with time or anything else. But there is a great divide between the believer and the unbeliever. Now here is a great opportunity to switch gears to close this. Because here's, here's a marvelous and a miraculous paradox about the person and work of Jesus Christ. While Jesus Christ is the great divider, he is also the greatest unifier. Because when we receive Jesus Christ as Savior, we are made one with Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Gentile. In God's eyes, there's no line. And a long time ago, I quit using the word race because the Bible speaks of one race. It, It was the evolutionary Darwin and others that divided the world into race to divide people and destroy and destroy certain ethnic groups. But in God, there's only one race. That's the Adamic race. But many ethnicities, a multiplicity of skin color. In Jesus Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. We are one before God. There is no gender division, neither male nor female. Now, please do not misinterpret that. God made he male and female. And I don't care what type of butchering surgeries you have, you can't change that. I don't care what poisonous scripts you put into your body, you can't change it. Male and female. But when we stand before God, we're made one in Christ and unified in Christ. There is neither rich nor power. There is no division of old or young, smart or simple. The vilest of sinners can be saved just like the the most sanctimonious, self-righteous hypocrite can be saved. As believers, regardless of any of these backgrounds, we have equal access to the throne of grace in time of need to find help. We all have the promise of John chapter 14. He has gone to prepare a place for us with many mansions. Each believer, regardless of your individual identity, can have a real, personal, and intimate relationship with God. This is Jesus Christ. Yes, the great divider, but also the great unifier. Christ causes the great division. Let me give an illustration of this great division for those that believe versus unbelief. From north to south, all across North America, runs the Rocky Mountains. And along the ridge, all the way across there, is what is called the Continental Divide. Two raindrops could fall out of the sky and land within inches apart from each other. One will travel west, the other will travel east. There is that great divide. Well, spiritually, Jesus Christ is the great divide, and it comes down to belief versus unbelief. John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him forever. Yes, it is that great divide of belief versus unbelief. It will cause division and great conflicts and even wars because truth can never coexist with a lie. However, in the midst of this world, never forget that Christ is also the great unifier for whosoever repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. 
may receive him as their Savior and become a child of God. It is not enough to be this close of men- mentally, like some here in John chapter 7, mentally believing he is the Messiah, believing he is God the Son, believing that he has the, the capacity to save you, believing that he did die on the cross, was buried, and three days later bodily rose out of the grave. It's not sufficient simply to believe that mentally. It's like the two raindrops that could fall so close together yet go totally opposite directions. You can believe all of that and be so close to the right side but still be on the wrong side. Except a man believe. You cannot see the kingdom of God. It is your choice. In the great divide, believe versus unbelief. What has been your choice? What will be your choice? Father, we come to you this morning, and what an incredible passage. Not only is it uh, an accurate record of what was happening during the life and times of Christ, but it is a timeless truth that, that we see reenacted every day today. And Father, today we rejoice with those that have received Jesus Christ as their Savior and are now a part of the family of God. And Lord, rather than being angry, our hearts mourn and our desires to see the unbelievers to turn and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Use us, O God, for your glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Foothills Baptist Gospel Hour. For more information about Foothills Baptist Church of Loveland, Colorado, you may visit our website at foothillsbaptistchurch.com. If you wish to donate to this radio ministry, please make your check payable to Foothills Baptist Church and mail to P.O. Box 771, Loveland, Colorado, 80539. Or you may go to our website at foothillsbaptistchurch.com and click on the Give tab. We would love to have you visit our regular Sunday services with morning worship at 9.30, Sunday school at 10.50, and Sunday evening at 5 o'clock. And until we meet again, be sure you are...
Looks like you've been sleeping well. Megan, he's back. The my pillow guy. And you're looking good. I'm still feeling good. Well, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, we've got the best pillow ever. My pillow 2.0. When I invented my pillow, it had everything you'd ever want in a pillow. Well, now there's new technology that makes it even better. My pillow 2.0 has my patented fill combined with a cooling fabric with temperature regulating thread. My pillow 2.0 is truly the next generation of my pillow. 
The best sleep just got even better. Whether you have a MyPillow or not, you need to get the brand new MyPillow 2.0. Call or go to MyPillow.com now. Use your promo code. KHNC. And for a limited time, when you buy one, you'll get a second one absolutely free. You're sleeping even better. And cooler, too. And you're looking good. Feeling good. I knew you would. Use promo code KHNC. Visit MyPillow.com. Hi, folks. I'm James Morgan, a realtor with Grisham & Associates, LLC. I know it must seem like there's a million realtors out there making all kinds of promises. Want to hear my big marketing promise? I promise honest and fair dealings with all those I do business with. That may sound old-fashioned, and it is not very catchy, but it is true. I am your Colorado real estate specialist. Farmland, mountain cabins, or urban dwellings. When you work with my team, we'll get the right property for you and be upfront and honest with you every step of the way. Over the years, my clients have told me just that fact alone separates us from others in the industry. If you are considering buying or selling real estate, call me, James Morgan, at 720-203-0731 or visit my website at coloradoproperties.online. No catchy slogan, just a client-first, honest real estate experience. Hit it, girls. Keep listening to the American Freedom Network. If you love wealth better than liberty, the tranquility of servitude better than the animated contest of freedom, go home from us in peace. We ask not your counsel nor your arms. Crouch down and lick the hands which feed you. May your chains be set lightly upon you, and may posterity forget that you were ever our countrymen. Samuel Adams. Bleed Stop. Clinically proven to stop bleeding in seconds. From minor cuts to large bleeding wounds, tear open the package and pour directly into the wound, apply direct pressure, and bleeding stops in seconds. It works for people on blood thinners, doesn't sting, is hypoallergenic, and is sterile. Bleed Stop. Safe in the wound. Find Bleed Stop on the KHNC website. Simply click on the Bleed Stop button at the top of the page. Hey, Joe Giganti, host of the regular Joe Show. Together we'll tackle the hottest topics, be it politics, entertainment, or the culture, unapologetically through the lens of true conservatism. Weekday morning, starting at 7 on KHNC 1360, The Roar of the Rockies. Hi, everybody. Glenn Tate, co-host of Prepping 2.0. Shelby Gallagher here. Join us Saturdays at 9 a.m. Right here on 1360 KHNC. Where we bring you great ideas to take your preps to the next level. You're listening to the Roar of the Rockies, KHNC, 